to you as a gift. And so we're in the gospel according to Mark, and this week we are um, going to be looking at verses 14 to 20, verses 14 to 20. All right, I'm going to read, follow along as I read. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Passing along the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. Let's pray. Jesus, we ask that you would bring about your purposes in our lives. And as you do, I pray that you would enable us to surrender to all you want to do. And so as we look at your word and your call on the lives of the disciples, may we be reminded of the fact that you've called us. And may we see how we can better allow your life to be lived in and through our life in this city. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In his book, Follow Me, David Platt tells a story of a young girl named Ayan. Ayan is a citizen of a people who are devout Muslims. To belong to Ayan's tribe is to be a Muslim. Her identity is fully intertwined with Islam. Because of this, if Ayan ever leaves her faith, she will immediately lose her life. If her family finds out she's no longer a Muslim, they will slit her throat without question or hesitation. Now, imagine sharing the gospel with Ayan. You begin by telling her that God loves her and how God demonstrated his love for her is that he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die for her sins. She responds to this with warmth. It's good news to her. But at the same time, she is fearful as she contemplates what it would cost her to follow Christ. Despite these fears... She is open to becoming a Christian. You then tell her that in the gospel, God is calling her to die, not a physical death, 
but to die to her life, to die to her family, to die to her friends, to die to her future. But in dying, to live in Jesus. To live as part of a global family that includes every tribe. To live with friends who span every age. To live in a future where joy will last forever. Ayan is not an imaginary character. She is a real woman David Platt met who made a genuine choice to become a Christian. Because of her decision, she was forced to flee her family and become isolated from her friends. Yet she is now working strategically for the spread of the gospel among her people. Ayan's story is a clear reminder that the initial call to Christ is a call to die. This call to follow Jesus at all costs is what we're going to spend our time reflecting on this morning. When Jesus approached four fishermen and summoned them to follow him, they obeyed the call and left their professions, their possessions, dream, ambitions, friends, family, and safety and security, all to follow Jesus. Like Ayan and the four fishermen we're about to look at closely, Jesus bids us too to follow him. And so if you're not a Christian, this is Jesus' call. Follow me. And so the question for you will be, what does it look like to follow Jesus? And if you are a Christian, don't think that initial call, your salvation, was it. Jesus' call to follow you then, back then, when you were saved, still stands to this day because he continues to call you and summon you to follow him. So, what does it mean for us living in 21st century San Diego to truly follow Jesus? And listen, truly follow Jesus. Look at verse 14. It says, Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. This introductory summary acts as a transition from the ministry of John to the ministry of Jesus. The very first thing we run into here is that everything we're about to witness happened after John the Baptist was arrested. Mark briefly, like he's been doing a lot in this book so far, briefly mentions John's arrest and then moves on. Later in chapter 6, he'll get into more detail using what is known as a narrative flashback to describe John's imprisonment an eventual execution. The next thing we learn from verse 14 is that the region of Galilee is where most of the things Jesus will do, all of his spiritual activities took place. So everything is taking place in Galilee, most of the things. And lastly, this introductory sentence introduces us to Jesus' message which is revealed as the gospel of God. So what then is the gospel of God? Look at verses 14 and 15 together. We're going to focus on verse 15. It says, Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, verse 15, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. What this is saying is that the gospel of God is the message 
about God's kingdom. When Jesus says that the time is fulfilled, what he's saying is that although there have been significant moments in history, this moment right here is a moment in, in the history of humanity where God began to act in a unique way. Does that make sense? Really follow along with me. We're going to get deep. This is kingdom of God stuff, yeah? And so, like, just, like, shake your head, lean forward, whatever. Keep up with me. This is great stuff. What event in human history has been fulfilled? Verse 15 reveals to us that it's the coming of the kingdom of God, okay? And then um, the question I want to ask is, this was interesting. The question I want to ask then is, what did Jesus talk about more than anything else? Okay, and so if you happen to go to a games night, right, at a church organized by Christians, mainly for Christians, right, and they played a bunch of games and they played a game like Family Feud and all of that, right, and you went and you sat there, most Christian kind of game nights have, I think this might be old school, but it could be true, have Bible quizzes, okay, Bible quizzes where you ask a bunch of questions and we recently had a games night and there was no Bible quiz and as a pastor I was really concerned that there was no Bible quiz but everyone was into um, family feud and all of these games okay right <laughs> right and so imagine if there was a Bible quiz and there was this question and the question was what did Jesus talk about more than anything else if we're honest with ourselves the topic of the kingdom of God is not what will come to mind but as we look at the life of Jesus, we'll come to find that Jesus talked more about the kingdom of God more than any other topic. Josh Porter, who I love so much, he's a pastor in Vancouver, says, it's not an exaggeration to say that all that Jesus said and did was an outworking of this message of the kingdom of God. So what is the kingdom of God? When we think of the word kingdom, we tend to think of a geographical location, an area of land where a king or queen sits on their throne and kind of rules and reigns. For example, where I'm from, Great Britain, it's called the United Kingdom. It's a kingdom, and the queen, Elizabeth II, is the reign, it's the monarch of Great Britain. But in the Bible, the term kingdom, right, kind of relates to that sometimes, but when it relates to God, as in the kingdom of God, describes an activity. It's whenever, listen to this, God's power, influence, and purposes are displayed in the lives of people and in the places they live. In other words, the kingdom of God, it's the activity of God reigning over his people and the world he created. For example, when Jesus says in the New Testament, thy kingdom come and thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, what he's doing is that he's asking his followers to pray that God would exercise his authority and his power in this world so that his purposes and plans are accomplished in and through his people. I get excited about these things. So, when Jesus says in verse 15 that the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand, what he's not saying is that there's this geographical location people can travel to called the kingdom of God. He's not talking about that. What he's saying is that the kingdom of God is here 
in the form of a person. The kingdom of God has been established because the king God had appointed and installed has arrived. And his name is Jesus. So wherever Jesus goes, whatever Jesus did is an outworking of the kingdom of God. Wherever Jesus, wherever Jesus goes, is a v- the kingdom of God becomes visible. And so King's Cross Church, as we journey through Mark, we'll see the kingdom of God become visible as Jesus exercises his authority as king over men, the forces of evil, sickness, and sin. The good news of the kingdom of God is this. Jesus is that true king, and wherever Jesus shows up, he exercises his reign and brings to reality God's kingdom purposes. So the question is, what does this mean for us as Jesus' followers living, working, or studying in San Diego? This is what it means to us. The kingdom of God is made visible whenever the life of Jesus, the king, is displayed in and through our life. The kingdom of God is made visible when the life of Jesus is displayed in and through our lives. The message of the kingdom of God is not just good news to be heard, but it's an announcement that demands a response. Look back at verse 15. It says, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. What does it say next? Repent and believe in the gospel. The word repent here means to turn uh, away from something. Turn away from something. Simplest form. Tim Keller makes it clear when he's clearer when he says in the Bible it refers specifically to turning away from the things that Jesus hates to the things he loves. So as we've discovered, the good news of the kingdom of God is about God's rule in and through Jesus the King. This news demands a response, and the response it demands is for you and me and every human on this planet to turn away from a life focused on self, right, to a life surrendered to the rule and reign of King Jesus and his purposes in the world. So in verses 16 to 20, when Jesus calls his first disciples, the call to repent and believe is not only demonstrated by them, but most importantly, what we are about to see is the authority of Jesus exercised and demonstrated in the world. So in verse, um, so. We read this, but this is what's been happening. Jesus is passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, What happens, he meets two fishermen casting a net into the sea to catch fish. They were brothers, and their names were Simon and Andrew. Jesus then calls out to them, saying, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. Verse 18 lets us know their response. What do they do? Immediately, they left their nets and followed him. As they went along following Jesus, Jesus came across two other brothers, James and John. 
What we know about them is that their father is called Zebedee. What a name, Zebedee. Do you guys know any Zebedees in this world? Anyone know any Zebedees? No? Okay. I like that name. Maybe if we have another child, we could name. Anyway. They're also fishermen. Okay? Also fishermen. Sorry, darling. These two brothers are also fishermen. And verse 20 says, look at verse 20. says that as soon as Jesus met them, what did he do? He called them. And just like Simon and Andrew, they left behind everything, their father and their family business. And what did they do? They followed Jesus. This all seems kind of like simple and straightforward. Think about it. Jesus taking a walk by the beach, right? He meets these guys who are fishing, fishermen. He kind of commands them to follow him. And what do they do? They obey him. Sounds simple. But this is a very unusual situation. To understand the uniqueness of it, we must notice several things. First, Jesus is the one that initiates. Okay? Jesus' call for these fishermen to follow him was unheard in the Jewish tradition. Jewish teachers, who are also known as rabbis, did not go around fishing for students. Totally the opposite. In those days, entrance into the rabbinical school depended on the credentials of the student. If you were a student and you wanted to study the ways of God and become knowledgeable in the Hebrew scriptures, then you would seek out a rabbi you admire, and what you would do is that you would fill out an application, submit your application along with your resume, then you will anxiously wait as your application is reviewed with the hopes that this rabbi, who you admire, who you want to study under, will accept your application and invite you to become his disciple. But Jesus does something totally different. He interrupts, he, what he does is interrupts them in the middle of their working day and says to them, follow me. And instead of waiting for them to seek him out, he goes out to seek them. And in so doing, this is what's happening. Jesus demonstrates something significant about our relationship with him. Our relationship with Jesus is based on his initiative. He first chose us. We didn't initially choose him. We're invited into a relationship with Jesus, not because of who we are or what we have or what we've achieved, but solely on the basis of what he has done. The fact is that we have been chosen by God to be his disciples. And my question to you is, are you satisfied with this? Are you satisfied with the fact that God became man, okay, lived a sinless life? and died the death of a sinful man, rose again on the third day, also that you may be saved, so that he may invite you into a relationship with him and give you eternal life. Are you satisfied with the fact that you were chosen by God? And at this moment, if you're a Christian, you are loved. And God looks on you and says, you are my beloved child. And I am pleased with you. Are you satisfied with that? 
The second thing we learn from Jesus' call to follow him is that he's the object of the call. He's the object of the call. Notice that Jesus says, follow me. Again, Jesus is breaking all the rules here. Okay? Normally, a disciple will seek out a rabbi so that they can learn from them. And what a disciple desires to learn from a rabbi is not their lifestyle, but what they know. Their knowledge of the Hebrew scriptures or um, the Hebrew laws or philosophies. And so students wanted to learn knowledge, learn from these rabbis. And so it was rare and it was uncommon for a young person to commit their life to studying the lifestyle of a rabbi. And in doing so, in calling them to himself, Jesus is demonstrating his authority. An authority Simon, Andrew, James, and John recognized and responded to. These guys left their careers and families and dedicated their lives to following Jesus. In the same way, when you were saved, Jesus called you into a relationship with himself. Jesus' invitation was not to a destination, but a relationship that would radically change your life. You were not called to follow a pastor or a religious leader. You were not called um, to follow a denomination or a set of rules, okay? You were not called to follow a church or a Christian leader. You were called by Jesus to follow him. And following Jesus means knowing who he is, doing what he did, and allowing his life, Jesus' life, to be lived in and through your life in this city. The third thing we learn um, from Jesus' call to follow him is that we live for Jesus, not for ourselves. When Jesus calls the disciples, what do they do? They immediately drop everything. They drop their nets to follow him. They no longer, after this, are living for themselves, but begin to live for Jesus. When you live for Jesus, your life is not centered on yourself, but on Jesus. The truth is, this is the truth. We're all disciples of someone or something. The word disciple simply means a learner. Okay, a learner. It's someone who's devoted to something or someone. This means that we can be disciples of a career. We can be disciples of a relationship. We can be a disciple of an experience. We can be a disciple of a country or political party. Recently, I started gardening, everybody. Okay, I started gardening. Started getting old or getting weird. I don't know. My wife and, my wife and most people, Umu included, is like, it's not going to last. It's just this phase he's going. But I love gardening. Okay, and because I love gardening, what have I been doing? I've been on YouTube and the internet tons of times, and I'm getting to know this whole world of gardening and realizing that, man, like you have individuals that have YouTube channels that are dedicated to teaching people like me how to garden effectively and all of those things, okay? 
And I'm realizing as I'm watching these videos, I am becoming a disciple of these people. I am, right? And so we are all disciples of something or someone. It's what shapes our choices and actions and affections. So when Jesus calls these men to follow him, he's claiming priority over their lives. He's demanding that they make him their all in all. He is to become their true master. In the same way, if Jesus is truly the son of God, he's not to be an add-on to your life, an accessory, if you will. He'll not be an addition to your life. If Jesus is God, he must be your everything. To follow Jesus means that we refuse to see anything more valuable than him. We refuse to see our career as more valuable than him. We refuse to see our relationships, our children, our money, our power, our city that we live in, that we love so much. We refuse to see all of these things more valuable than him. Jesus is saying to all of us, to follow me is not to make me a part of your life, but to make me the very center of your life life. Jesus is saying, hey, I don't want to be the next big thing in your life. I want to be your everything. I want to be the only thing in your life. I want to be the person that you live for. In following Jesus, it's not about us. It's about him. And about us living for him. Lastly, Jesus calls these men to follow him so that he can make them fishers of men. Here, Jesus is using familiar language to make it clear that he not only calls them to himself, but also sends them out on mission. Did you hear that? Jesus is using familiar language to not just communicate that he's calling them to himself, but also to call them to mission. Tim Chaddick, so helpful throughout this series for me. Uh, today he texts me like him and his daughter at an Arsenal game. For all those who understand the world of soccer. There you go. <laughs> today, this morning. When Jesus says, I make you fishers of men, I get so distracted easily. I'm sorry, guys. I'll get used to being more focused than all of those things. Anyway, when Jesus says, I make you fishers of men, he says, it's like Jesus saying, and listen to this, my work in you is going to change everything about how you work in the world. I'm here to change your priorities. It's not about you. It's about God's purposes in your life. Many of you have made significant sacrifices in your life. Many of you have made a significant sacrifice in choosing to be part of this church plant. We're like six months old. And I am incredibly, just throughout our six months, I've been incredibly blessed 
to observe the display of commitment by every single one of you guys that call this church home. Some of you chose to leave, okay, more established churches that have abundance of resources so you can join a new church plant with limited resources. Some of you have left your friends. Some of you left well-paid jobs and the convenience of more established church to be part of this church. We have members in this church, okay, that travel like 20, 25 minutes from where they live to here. And in San Diego, like 20 minutes is a long time. If you live in LA, you're like, 20 minutes? That's like nothing, you know? <laughs> right? But people that travel 25 minutes with their families and get here early so that they can roll up their sleeves and help serve. I am incredibly thankful for the commitment many of you have shown. No matter the level of sacrifice you have made, remember that the decisions you make to serve Jesus through this church is not a commitment to King's Cross Church as an institution. It's not a commitment to me. But you have made sacrifices for Jesus, the King. There are many people in this city Thousands of people. For example, uh, my wife and I recently enrolled our kids into a school not too far from here. There are 500 students. 500 students. And to this day, we've not met any. And you know Eleanor and I, we're just super out there, super trying to meet everyone. We've not yet met any authentic and genuine Christians. And that communicates to us the great need that is in this city. There are many people in this city who are in need of a loving relationship with God. And we need to get to the point where we say, God, it's not about me. It's not about me. It's about you. God, use everything in my life for your mission Jesus, I long for other people to come into a relationship with you. I long to live in such a way that the people you've placed around me will see and know that you, Jesus, are my treasure. If you're here and you're a Christian, know that you've been saved. Not only to, make Jesus, not only to know Jesus, but to make Jesus known wherever he's put you. This is what Jesus is. Follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. Jesus saved you so that you can be his instrument to invite others to follow him. This is the mission God is calling us to. It's saying, hey, look at your budget. Look at your job, look at your resources, look at the skills, look at everything you have. If Jesus is truly the king of your life, if Jesus is truly the one you value the most, everything you have 
We should be saying, hey, it's not mine. It's you. It's for you, Jesus. And so I'm giving this all to you, and I want you to let me know how I can live life to the fullest for you. Why? Because we're not here for ourselves. As a church, we're here to make a mature followers of Jesus, and the need is out there. So much need. What if we continued to magnify Jesus in our lives, and the more we did it, the more we would realize the need out there, and the more we would have faith to believe that, man, God, you can save my neighbors. God, you can bring the people I work with, um, 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 the people I study with, whatever I'm doing, or the people I'm, you know, in Glenn's case, on the ship with, and all of that. Like, you can, you can save those people. We are here for Jesus, and his call for us to follow him also means for us to be intentional and prayerful about making and seeing other people saved. And so for these disciples, fishing was their livelihood. For them, it was their only means of providing for themselves. So to leave this behind for a Jewish carpenter turned preacher was a big deal. It's a huge deal. Jesus walked into your office or wherever and you didn't even really know who he was and just said, follow me. He would go, you're not my boss. Who are you? But these disciples knew who Jesus was. They knew he was the promised Messiah. They knew he was the king. And as a result, they were willing to drop everything to follow him. These men made huge sacrifices to follow Jesus. They had no other career, most of them. All they were skilled in was fishing. They probably, most of them, never had any formal education. This fishing business was their only source of income. But guess what? They decided to drop it all and follow this young and unknown and unproven prophet from Nazareth. Tim Keller says, this is brilliant. We know from reading the rest of the Gospels, and listen to this, that these men did fish again, and they did continue to relate to their parents, but what Jesus is saying is still disruptive. In traditional cultures, you get your identity from your family. And so when he says to them, I want priority over your family, that's drastic. It's like Ayan from the beginning, right? In our individualist culture, on the other hand, saying goodbye to our parents isn't a big deal. But for Jesus to say, I want priority over your career, I want priority over your relationship, I want priority over your finances, I want priority over your, um, um, your, your time, I want priority over what you say. I want priority over all of this. Jesus is saying, knowing me, loving me, resembling me, serving me must become the supreme passion of your life. Everything comes second. And so the implication of all of this is that Jesus is still calling. Today, he extends his call. 
It's a call to believe. And so, are you, are you a believer of Jesus Christ? If you're not, you're not here by accident. Jesus, through me, through, through our church community, is calling you to follow him. It's also a call to repent. You need to repent. As I said earlier, Jesus' call is not just this one-time event. Jesus' call to follow him is an ongoing call for us all as believers to reorient every moment of our lives for him and his purposes. It's a continual call. Can't say, oh, I'm a Christian and, oh, he's already called me. And no, it's a continual call for us to continue to recenter and reorient our lives around him. And so this week coming, you will be challenged. You will be challenged to display your commitment to Jesus based on the decisions you make. The disciples willingly dropped their most prized possessions to follow him. So my final question to you is, what is getting in your way of fully following Jesus? Not just the initial surrendering your life to him. What's getting in your way to following Jesus tomorrow, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday? What's in your life? That is not in line with Jesus' purposes for you. You know. And if you don't know, ask him to reveal it to you. What are you holding on to that you need to let go of in order to fully, fo- to fully follow Jesus? What are you holding on to? Pray with me. Jesus, thank you again for your love and your grace. I so pray that you would, through the power of your Holy Spirit, enable us all to truly follow you. And as we dedicate our life to you, thank you for reminding us that we have also made a commitment to helping others know you. And so, Father, help us to never forget that we're not only called to help each other grow to love you more, but we're also called to help others who don't know you, who need you, to know you as well. Thank you for your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, we're going to transition into um, a time of singing and communion. What's going to happen is that we have the elements available there for you to celebrate communion. Communion reminds us of several things. It reminds us of what Jesus has done for us. So, we are looking back at Jesus' sacrifice. We're looking 
back at his, uh, um, his body broken for us. And this is represented by um, the crackers we have there. And it's also looking back at um, his blood that was shed for us. And that is also represented um, by the juice we have over there. So we're looking back, but we're also absolutely celebrating and this is a joyous moment. Why? Because this is us remembering all that Jesus has done for us. And if you're like me, sometimes this whole communion and the practice of it can become kind of routine. It can become something we just kind of do. But pray that as you celebrate communion by coming forward, when you are led to or whenever you want and taking um, a piece of the cracker and dipping it in the blood, pray. And as you go back to your seat and as you pray, pray that God, you would help me not only understand intellectually the significance of what you've done for me through communion, but that you would cause everything I'm doing to shape the way I live and shape the way I think and shape my heart so that I may follow you and I may live for you. And so in your own time, may you remember and may you celebrate all that Jesus has done for you through communion. Be blessed. <laughs>